Welcome, everybody, to the Brown and Black Podcast. This is episode 29. I'm joined by Mike Sargent, and this uh, episode is going to be a little bit different. This is the bonus episode with Keith McWhorter that we are recording. We actually uh, did a video with him as well, and that is currently on our Brown Black Podcast YouTube channel that you can check out right now, where we talk about, by any means necessary, Uh, The Times of the Godfather of Harlem, that is airing on Epics. And we're going to be talking to him in a little while. But Mike, one of the things I thought we should really catch up on is the atomic bomb that hit uh, Investor Day over at Disney that sent every media reporter uh, running out of their houses. Uh, This was a massive deal after the war. I mean, I I can't even wrap my head. It's so much assessing. So many perspectives and opinions and hypotheticals being thrown out everywhere that seriously, man, I am I, my 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 head's been turning around and around like the exorcist. I just can't seem to just hold it in place. There's so much news hitting us. Um, do you want to give us a recap of what, what happened yesterday? Well, Walt Disney announced that they have 137 million paid subscribers. Well, that's globally, now, right? That's including Hulu and ESPN, but Disney Plus alone is only 88 million. And I say only 88 I, because the 137 is only 40 million under Netflix, which has, I believe, 195 million subscribers globally. And by the way, they've been in the game for years uh, Disney Plus, I think, is not even knocking on a year. That That's insanity, man. Listen, listen. Le, le, the way we should have pro- uh, started this is that Disney announced yesterday the beginning of the streaming, the wars. streaming wars. We're deep in it now. And you're right. Now, 88 million is phenomenal. I think any... Uh, streamer would be very, very you happy. Look at to HBO have those Max; numbers. they only have twelve point six. Exactly. So I think that that that's phenomenal. But the fact is that not only did they announce that they have one hundred and thirty-seven million subscribers total, but again, let let's face it: that's one hundred and thirty-seven million subscribers. I don't care what part of you they're subscribing to; they're subscribing. They project that they're going to by twenty twenty-four have 300 to 350 million total subscribers. Now, <laughs> now, le- now, let me put that in perspective. That, that, let is, me put that, that, in is, perspective. that is the population of the United States <laughs> of America. That's what I was just going to say. United States of America is 331 million. Now, here's the other thing. The way they plan to do that is by launching an international general entertainment content brand called Star. Yeah, that's the one that's supposed to be uh, the Hulu International, but they're replacing it. Well, so, nah. I mean, I get all that. But, mm-hmm. you know, yesterday, what really happened was they dropped 100 announcements about programming that's going to be coming out of Disney+. Plus. Yes. So part one, which is the Reginald Hudlin interview, which is, by the way, one of my favorite episodes so far. And in there, you and I had spoken about Warner Brothers and how, listen, man, it's not that I hate theaters. It's just that everybody knows that every time you go to the theater, it's a shitty experience. There's long lines in the bathroom. The food sucks. The chairs suck. Uh, You got to pay premium for everything that might be a little bit more upscale. This whole notion, 
of movie theaters staying exactly as they are because somebody wants to go to a movie theater four times a year isn't cutting it anymore, man. Now, people are creating home theaters at home for, for cheap. Right now, you can get a big 85 OLED inch TV for less than $1,000 or around $1,000. It's it's insane. So streaming movies, day of release is going to be a reality next year. And Disney, and check this out, eight out of the 100 programs that they announced that they were, they were going to put out, 80 of them, I believe 80 to 80% of them, are going to be going straight to streaming. Now, what's not going to theaters? You know it, all the Marvel stuff. Black Widow, Shang-Chi, The Eternals, that's the one where Kumal Nanjiani uh, got jacked for that movie. Sama Hayek is in that movie. And these are going to go to theaters. Now... The vaccine has already, I'm not sure if you've been, you know, reading about the news, but of the, course. The, I've been getting a bunch of notifications that that the FDA has approved authorization to distribute the Pfizer vaccine. Now, two things are going to happen, whether we're going to go to movies or stay at home or do both, which is, I think most people are going to do like a hybrid thing. You know, sometimes they'll go see it at the movies, depending on the film. And most of the times they'll stay at home, uh, especially if they have an AT&T phone. You don't got to pay for HBO Max, you know, or you get some deal. You don't got to pay for Disney. So if the vaccine works, right, you're, what you're dealing with right now is that there's some people that are not going to take that vaccine yet. They always, it's like phones, you know, it's like, hey, don't buy the, the, the first update of the phone. Maybe get the second or third update. They're going to treat the same thing with the vaccine. I don't know if I'm going to get the vaccine just yet. Let me hear if there's any side effects, blah, blah, blah. I don't think everybody's going to be rushing to go to the theater, especially in, in, in the winter. This is going to be a summer thing. Everybody goes back. I get that because I'll, I'll be there too, especially if it's a big movie. But from now all the way until summer, until I know that the vaccine is working, until all my friends have been taken, until I see Barack Obama and Bill Clinton and all these other presidents that said they're going to, you know, do the vaccines live on TV, until I see that, I'm not getting that vaccine, unless I'm sick, of course. But I'm weary of that shit, man. Like, I give a shit about my life. So I'm going to be watching shit from home. If the vaccine works... Then everybody could go, but I don't think anybody's rushing back to go to the movie theaters, Mike. Well, I agree with you. I don't think, I think not only are people not rushing back to go to the movie theaters and people are not rushing to get the vaccine. It's also how are they going to distribute this? It's not going to be like, all right, go down tomorrow and pick it up at the CVS. It's okay. (laughs) It's going to be, it's going to have to roll out. Autobots, transform and roll out. And and they have to deal with the marketing, like you said. They have to, they have to make sure. You know, let me just say that people of color are going to be the least trusting of any vaccine. You know, not to mention the fact that they're going to be mm-hmm. battling. Just like we're in an age now where everything has a conspiracy theory attached to it, and lies are part of reality. It's just part of reality. You have to sift 
through the lies. So to even, like you said, to even know it, 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 it at least with the updates, you can go online and you can go, okay, what are the problems with the OS, uh, two, you know, 13 update and, and the, the latest Android, whatever <laughs> creature they're going to call it. So, but with a vaccine, you have to start monitoring and reading and who's coming down with what already I've seen reports coming out about how you know people got bell's palsy four people got bell's palsy from uh, the vaccine and oh, all right yeah but that's four people out of 22,000 you know so but what is that going to get spun into so all of these kind of things I, I agree with you nobody's going to be running back to the theater and i also got to say those days are over jack they are like you said the the whole concept of going to the theater it's going to become something else and it's the going to become a goes, luxury a luxury cinematic movie theater experience it's the thing that you go when you just picked up the hot girl that you've always wanted you want to impress her you're going to take her out in the nice car uh in the in the uber platinum <laughs> then you're going to take her down to the i pick at the south street seaport you know to me one of if not the best theater experience in new york york city you're gonna drop like a hundred dollars get a waiter give you food uh that's what the movie theater experience is going to become and no one's gonna tell me no all right but the the girl and and the movie like okay so you're saying you're gonna go see shang chi or or the new avengers movie or like i mean is it only going to be these big budget movies that's it that's it that's it is that is that a date night or is that Something else. No, that's a date night because these superhero movies attract women and men. You know, they're four quadrant films. So you know that everyone's going to those, including old people. I mean, I mean, that's where you pay the money. That's where you go out and press. And because we live in a hierarchical society, you know, it's like classism. It's I'm better than you, especially if you're in the big cities. Watch me shell out one hundred and fifty dollars to get the full, you know, uh, cinematic experience. Go ahead. Do it, man. I'm going to be at home. Watching it from the comfort of my own home, nice and warm, you know, and I'm not going to drop 150. Well, you could have like your digital audience, a virtual audience, like you <laughs> yeah, create, create yeah. the just periscope and just stream, stream the movie. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, that's an interesting thing that you just kind of brought up. It's like that virtual like friendship, like watching movies, the amount of pirating that's going to happen. Well, you see, here's how they get around that. I think, I think in many ways, I think pirating is going to change because again, whatever the biggest movie is, you know, even Avengers, even whatever big movie it is, it'll go to the theaters. It'll be that money. But guess what? If, if all of the industry has gone like Warner's has to day and date. Okay, so that means you might be able to see, uh, the, the same superhero movie. At home, and if you can't, how long is it going to be? A month? How long? No, you have that's to wait? that's a exactly month? what it's going to be. Um, right. As soon a as they month? come in, it's going to be, I think, thirty days, Mike. Just like right. you said. So thirty days, and that's it. So, so, but bro, that's you all. Know, but all you got to do is just f- uh, stream yeah, but, it on your phone. But that's what I mean. Like you'll wait, you'll wait thirty days. Thirty days is nothing. Right now, I remember. You know, when I was a kid, Star Wars was in the theater for like two years. Okay, there's nothing that is ever staying in a movie theater that long ever again. So, right, 
I, I also think that that our expectations and, and what we're looking for, you know, the idea of, you know, Disney, like you said, dropped a whole bunch of announcements. Not only are they going to have all this content and like 57 different series or something, Star Wars and, and Marvel and, and, and just straight up Disney on Disney Plus, they also are raising their subscription by a dollar. By a do- but that's okay. Seven ninety nine, Mike. It's still yeah, but, cheaper but, than Netflix. Sure, it's cheaper but, but than HBO Max, for- which I think was sixteen bucks. But think about this for a second. They got one hundred thirty seven million subscribers. So they again, just said it's Hulu and ESPN. I just want to make the right, distinction. All right, all right. So it's eighty eight million. Okay, that means you decided. Okay, we're going to make an extra eighty eight million a month. That's significant. Over the course of a year, that's a billion dollars. That choice is a billion dollar choice. So creating this content, it's sort of like buying Star Wars. They have invested in the long game and the long game is watching movies at home. That that that's the long game, and, and no one's going to be able to tell me you know differently. There's the evolution has already happened. The genie's out of the bottle, and you can't mm-hmm. put the genie back in the bottle. You can't once you know that there is the choice of going to the movie theaters or staying at home, dude. Mike, let's be honest, and we're critics. How often have movie studios said, "Hey, there's a there's a the five six p.m. screening, and then there's the eight nine p.m. screening." True. You live all the way up in uh, Riverside, around you know the hundreds, right? You got to take yep. the A train to come back down to go to all the movie screenings of the movie studios, right? There's nothing in Washington Heights, and there's no there's no screenings over there. Whether it's raining or in the snow. Are you going to tell me that you would literally prefer to get up, bulk up, take the train, walk, rain, sleet, hail, and then sit down in a shitty theater with no popcorn, no drinks, watch this. Sometimes you might come in late. You got to sit in the front or sit all the way in the back in a, in a crappy seat. Come on, man. You're going to tell me you wouldn't prefer to stay home to watch No Time to Die or Wonder Woman on Christmas Day? Well, that's that's very interesting. Okay, I have two questions for you, Jack. Two well, questions. I haven't answered. That, all right. Well, now you know you you paint such a picture. No popcorn. <laughs> it's crap. You're sitting in the front. You're next to a smelly guy. And then, all right. So you know clearly, uh, uh, and and this this my question. I, I obviously I would rather stay home. Uh, there's there's no comparison. Me and, too. All right. No comparison. But but here's what you, you're leading me to, uh, and and I and it's a two part question. One, um conditioning now that you get conditioned to not having to leave your house to go see something you really want to see how much are you now going to have to you know you dealt with the unpleasantness like you said the the traveling the this the train the 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 the, the you know the no popcorn the, the seat is broken all the things that can happen when you go to a movie theater you know that hopefully is is overshadowed by how great the movie is. Because if you go, you go through all that, and then the movie sucks too, then it's like, wow. Oh, it's double whammy. <laughs> exactly. So, so, yes. But here's the thing, the conditioning. Once we're conditioned, even as critics now, we're getting links for everything. We're watching everything at home. We're streaming before you stream. So after a while, like you said, you get conditioned, just like anything else. We're conditioned. We're conditioned to. So here's the question. 
in the background of all of what has just happened with Disney, the, the government is cracking down on Facebook and, and claiming oh, yeah. that now, now, but here's the question I have. Okay. Um, Facebook has too much power, right? They they're controlling too much. They're be able, they're able to track our data and sell it and they control too much. Well, you know, antitrust really, it, it, you know, one of the, the issues is, you know, what country can, you know, different countries have stopped different social media companies and whatnot. But what happens when media giants, what happens to media giants? When will Disney get too big? When will they control too much, too many storylines, have too much influence on the culture? Or is that ever going to be a thing? That's going to happen when it beats Netflix. You think so? Netflix is the golden standard. It's the highest bar. When it comes to streaming and the future of the way we consume content and content creation, it's it's Netflix. So, but so, but he, so I, if I you agree. beat Netflix, then you're bigger than the biggest giant in the world. Sure. And and what did Disney do when they started making a lot of money with the Marvel movies? They decided they asked the theaters for more money up front, more of the That's take. That's right. Okay, so what did they do now when they got 137 million subscribers total, or 88 million? You keep correcting me. Fine, 88 million. What they do? They raise it by a dollar. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying, once you have a monopoly on what everybody wants to see, and you really you don't have that much competition because you've you know maybe Netflix is your only op- other competition. It's like Mac and 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 PC. So what then? Yeah, because look, I think Apple TV and Amazon Studios, these are people, these are companies that are creating content, not for the art. They're, 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 they're creating it to sell a product, just to push the product. That's all they're doing. It really is a commercial consumer strategy. Um, But the other ones, Disney, HBO Max, Netflix, they're in it for the art. They're in it to make money through the art. They care about the creators, about the directors. They like playing that Hollywood bullshit, man. They love it. They love it. They were born for that. And so they are. You know, Viacom CBS is coming out with Paramount Plus. That'll be interesting. I think Peacock is the absolute worst one of them all. Uh, it feels like a 1990. If a streaming app came out of the 1990s, that's what Peacock would look like. It's almost like they created a classic retro 90s mid 90s um streaming app and and i don't know who that's for um but regardless i do think that hbo disney and netflix are going to be the trio and it's going to be amongst them who they beat and i think that the leader once all it's said and done once it's uh, once the the fog clears, my friend, Disney Plus will be the Titanic giant standing in the room, the last one standing in the room, my friend. I think they're going to win it. All right. So, so in other words, just like Apple did, like other people had MP3 players, but Apple said, "Okay, I can do what you did, but much better." Exactly. And that's what they're going to do. They just there's, <laughs> did you see the stocks? The yes, stock went through the yeah. roof yesterday. Of course man. it did. Of course. It's a hundred and seventy dollars stock. The other day we were talking about how it might go bankrupt and we because foolishly was- we foolishly didn't buy any. I feel horrible now. That's right. I it's your fault, like Jack. It's now. your fault. You should have told me, Jack. 
You should have told me. <laughs> so with that said, um, this is just going to keep on evolving. Uh, there's going to be a lot more news in the next episode next Friday that will drop and see where things go from there. A lot is going to depend on the vaccine and the Biden administration on how we all feel as Americans going out to the theaters. Um, but uh, we have a great interview uh, with you today with Keith McWhorter. He's the director of the brand new four-part docuseries by any means necessary, The Times of the Godfather of Harlem. Uh, he directed it. Uh, Forrest Whitaker is the executive producer. And Mike, it really is a brown and black show. <laughs> it feels like it was made for you and me for this for this uh, show right here, man. Well, it definitely was made for for the show. And and what I love about the documentary and and what we're doing with the show is and what we're talking about today is as the cultural landscape changes and. There's different types of narrative. The one thing that Netflix has done is really start to serve the underserved and show mm. that there is an audience. So now that we know there's an appetite and and having a series like The Godfather of Harlem and then to actually have a documentary series really contextualizing the time, that's really powerful in terms of showing how black and brown people have worked together and how much we've contributed to the fabric of America. Music became a guiding force. It gave a sense of community. We started a revolution. There was a transition happening. When you look at Harlem, the people, they were trying to be treated with respect. The only thing everyone agreed on, it was time for real change. Executive produced by Forrest Whitaker and directed by Keith McCorder, the four-part docuseries by Whatever Means Necessary, The Times of Godfather of Harlem on epics.com is out right now. The series brings to light the dramatic true story of Harlem and its music during the 1960s and connects that history to our present moment. And with us right now is Keith McCorder. Keith, welcome to the Brown and Black Podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So the way the this uh, interview was pitched to me is like, hey, Jack, you have a show called Brown and Black, a podcast, and this series is a brown and black show, perfectly kind of <laughs> meant for you guys, where we take a further, deeper exploration of the times of New Yorkers that were Latino and black in Harlem, and the music that came together, that shared music, that shared lifestyle that uh, gave way to so much of the great music we have today. I mean, these were some of the precursors to disco. I mean, we were looking at the fusion, not only of music, but the fusion of cultures, this fusion of lifestyles and intellect. And to me, I think the 60s in Harlem was a form of a renaissance. Would you agree? Yeah, it certainly seems that way. With the blending of the blending of culture, the, the the migrations that were happening in the '60s and before the '60s, um, it all accumulated into um, this creative hub um, that a lot of the music we take for granted today, like hip hop, you know, and and the fusion of Caribbean music and and um, R and B and all the just all the all the good stuff that we take for granted today at the club and just listen to and, and like you know dance to and bop our heads to it has roots somewhere and a lot of those roots started in the 1960s so you know it, that decade gave us so much musically and politically 
you know, one of the things that uh, your series does is, is show just how connected uh, the arts, music specifically, uh, and activism are connected. Uh, but also, you know, the blending, you know, and that's the, the term you use, the blending of the cultures. I want to know your thoughts or, or in terms of your research, uh, what were some of the things that were strongest that came across to what that blending actually yielded? Because it definitely yielded music, but, you know, we had some common struggles then too. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, we took, my team and I, we took a deep dive into, um, you know, this neighborhood, East Harlem, Harlem, and um, the migrants coming out of the South who are fleeing racial terrorism, who are looking for economic, their economic opportunities for themselves and their families, came to Harlem for, for work. Um, and many of the migrants from Puerto Rico and the immigrants from Cuba and other parts of the Caribbean were coming for some similar reasons. They're looking for work and provide better lives for their families. And so they ended up in Harlem. And um, they found themselves facing a lot of the same issues of discrimination, lack of opportunity. Um, you know, the, the Spanish-speaking immigrants, migrants, you know, couldn't have even a, another set of barriers because they didn't have the language. To, they didn't have the language. And so they find themselves, you know, in Upper Manhattan in that, I will say, isolation, if you will. Um, you know, they could only rely on themselves in a lot of ways. And the um, music that was coming out of the Latin neighborhoods, the, the Tito Puentes and, and the, the ballads that, you know, um, a lot of the people we interviewed talked about their grandparents listening to the old, you know, ballads from the Spanish language ballads. You know, eventually the, the Latin communities and the black communities were all in the same nightclubs, they were doing the same things, they had the same oppression, the same fight um, against police brutality, these sorts of things. So to separate the two, many would say, many who we interviewed would say, they couldn't necessarily separate the Puerto Ricans and the African Americans because they were facing the same issues. And so when Boogaloo came about in the 1960s, um, you know, it was a real blend between the Latin beats and English language. Bang Bang came out. They blend the Spanish, the Spanish soul food and African American soul food, and it's right there in the language, and everyone could sing to it, everyone could have a good time to it. And so out of that blossomed a whole new culture. We interviewed Joe Batan, and he was a Boogaloo superstar from that time. And um, he talks about... Um, you know, he made his first song. He was once on the streets, he was a gangster on the streets, he wanted to become a musician. And here's a man who really wills himself into whatever he wants. I mean, he just kind of like, I want to be a musician. And he became a famous musician. You know, he didn't have any musical skills, any musical background, but he found a way to make it work. And so it was time for him to record his first song, which was Gypsy Woman. And he forgot his lyrics. And so um, he had, but he had to record. So the lyrics that he had in his head were Curtis Mayfield's um, lyrics uh, to Gypsy Women. Um, and so he could just kind of borrow those lyrics and made them his own. And so this, and it became a hit, you know, and he, and he talks about that in the series and in a very colorful way. I had interviewed Joe Baton for an NBC News um, series that we were doing on Latin music. Um, and Joe and I really got to know, there, there was like a documentary on Boogaloo that, came out maybe four or five years ago yep. that was very good but it didn't really include a lot of the african-american sensibilities of that um in this particular case what was your vision here was it really to unite black and latinos 
and see how those musical inspirations based on the series Godfather of Harlem came to be? Is this a historical document? Is this a musical project? Is it like a black project for black African-Americans that Latinos are included or is it a Latino one with blacks are included? Is it for both audiences equally? Yeah, well, it's a good, it's a good question. You know, when I, when this project started to come to fruition, I really wanted to follow um, the story of what um, music, how music is used as a weapon for change, socially and culturally. And so, um, and so that brought, for specifically for music coming out of Harlem or the POV of Harlem, the original premise was to really follow the message in the music, you know, and how that music was used to reflect the times, empower the people, or to give people hope to continue to fight forward, right? And so, you know, we, the series starts off um, in gospel. We look at gospel music and the spirituals that were coming out of the South that came up to the North with the migrants and how um, gospel music um, was used to affirm ourselves, affirm our communities, um, uh, you know, to keep our communities together, to keep that grouping, because that was itself, that grouping itself was political. And as we later learned how to use in greater numbers across the country, gospel music made it trans transformed into freedom songs. And those songs were used to continue the, the narrative of um, we're going to continue to, to fight forward, you know, using different philosophies. And Martin Luther King's philosophy of nonviolence, we is well known. So many of the freedom singers would talk about um, freedom. And you know, woke up this morning with my mindset on Jesus. I grew up in the Baptist church. My parents are both Southern. So I knew those songs very well. The freedom songs would, for instance, change it to, I woke up this morning with my mind set on freedom. Right? So it just sets, it sets, the, it sets the horizon and it gets everyone on the same page. And that was, one of, that was one way that music was used as a weapon for change. Well, one of the things about, you know, the more you, you learn about history, the more you kind of understand the present. I'm curious for you, uh, part of the impetus obviously was as a companion piece to The Godfather of Harlem, but this really gives context to the world, what was happening at the time that these events were happening. For you in doing this, were there any things that really struck you about just how much either has not changed or just how we're really in a place where we were 50 years ago. You know, it's upsetting how, how we find ourselves in the same place after all mm. this time. You know, growing up and having learned about the civil rights movement through movies and books, my parents um, and aunts and uncles, you know, there's a real sense of like, that was the past, that was then. But as you get older, you realize, you know, when you start comparing, and not a lot's changed, right? We're still fighting the same issues. And, and even the parallels are very similar. In the late 60s, Nixon was elected president. Um, and that was, in his, his election was a large part to the response of the aftermath of Martin Luther King's assassination. Um, there were riots everywhere. There's uprisings across the country. People were terrified and people were fed up. They no longer just wanted to wait and uh, hope for change. They wanted to make change themselves. So, and so there's a whole law and order agenda, or I should say, um, just a lot, lot, lot of law and order talk and a lot of his, his voting bloc wanted to return back to the America of the past, right? 
And, and so it's like, hmm, you know, that seems too familiar. <laughs> yeah. you know, I feel like we're right, we're right back to where we were. And it's, it's sad and it's upsetting, but it just, it just goes to show, listen, we can't, we can't sit on our hands and continue. Those of us of consciousness, those of us who want to see, make better for our families and children, um, in the future, we can't sit on our hands. Like we have inherited a legacy that you can choose to accept or not accept. And um, I personally choose to accept that legacy, that heritage. And, um, and so to, to learn about the music and how the artists and the musicians were using their skills at the time and in conjunction with the activists of that time um, from, from Martin Luther King to Malcolm X to the Black Panther Party to Young Lords and, and so many people on that list and groups on that list it's inspiring and just kind of opens my eyes up more. And I hope it does the same for the audiences because here in 2020, um, you know, things are changing. Things, I mean, there's been a, a, a climate change, um, cultural climate change. Um, and it didn't start with the death of George, George Floyd, but it certainly had a global awakening of some sort with him. And so the musicians of today and this is why this is why it was so fascinating, and I was so excited to make this documentary, because the musicians of today are out there and making protest music in numbers we've never seen before. This is the renaissance of protest music, from unknown artists to known artists. And so, whether they know it or not, because I don't know if all of them realize it, but you know, they picked up the baton, and they're carrying on this tradition that so many artists were doing in the 1960s. That's what I was going to ask you. I know the show is a lot about connecting the history of the 60s in Harlem uh, with Blacks and Latinos creating this new movement, a revolution, uh, culturally and politically and socially. Um, but how do you see things today in the present moment with Latinos and Blacks, with Brown and Blacks? Is there still that same unity? Um, I know we've seen fusions between reggaeton and some black artists in mm -hmm. hip hop in the last two or three years, but yeah. I don't feel that that unity that we saw back in the 60s still exists in 2020. Yeah. Uh, I might see that differently. You, you, you look like you're much more connected to that. Can you speak to that? Where, what, what is the relationship between blacks and Latinos today? Yeah, I wonder the same thing. Um, you know, with the Latino, with the Latino population in this country being so diverse, you know, it's hard to really to to group all Latinos into one one group and say, you know, um, these issues are important. And there's many different issues important to different groups in the Latino population. Um, but you know, I, I wonder because sometimes I do think we work in silos. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, we're all fighting for human rights, and. And I don't know if we're all always organized <laughs> that way to um, help each other advance each other's agenda. So with this year, J-Lo, um, uh, Jennifer Lopez performed at the Super Bowl and, and, and uh, under the direction of Jay-Z's, whatever his role is in that NFL thing, I'm not quite <laughs> clear what that is still. <laughs> but, you know, J-Lo performed at the Super Bowl and I was really inspired by her performance. JLo is one of our pop royalty in this country. Uh, she's been in a lot of work over the years, and she has gained, you know, the respect that she has earned. And she put on a performance that spoke directly to the backlash of immigrants coming from Latin countries. Um, in her performance and the music choices, 
she that she chose. Um, she spoke directly to power and the issues that were going on at the borders um, with the families being separated. And that was a that was a front and center mainstream, you know, protest performance by a major musician uh, just this year that spoke directly to the issues and to power. I don't know if everyone recognized that. It's just J-Lo at the Super Bowl. Let's just, you know, drink beer, have fun, you know? <laughs> you know she's fun on the pole, all that stuff. You know, she has all that <laughs> razzle-dazzle in there too. Um, but, you know, it's, 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 it's that, it's going back to what's the music and the message? What's the message in the music, right? And how is, it, how is that pushing forward the culture? And she did it in her own way. So, you know, I, I would like to think um, that we're all on the same page, but I'm not quite sure. I mean, right now we're in a really interesting time. Um, and I hope that uh, we'll all get to a place where we can look at these issues as human rights and really, you know, find a connection there. Because I think that's going to really be what's sustainable for us all. I was just watching a video that you had tweeted out on Malcolm X on a show where I think he was speaking to about three white men um, in an interview. And he was talking exactly about what you just said, you know, about that this, what's happening in the country isn't a racial issue. It's not an American issue. It's a human rights issue. We feel that the problem, number one, of the black man in America is beyond America's ability to solve. It's a human problem, not an American problem or a Negro problem. We believe that our problem is one not a violation of civil rights, but a violation of human rights. Not only are we denied the right to be a citizen in the United States, we're denied the right to be a human being. And so what you're saying kind of really sort of echoes a lot of what Malcolm X was really kind of looking at, that we need to fix the human problem of why whites look at blacks and Latinos in, in that way. And if we can fix that, then we could probably hope for a better future in America. But the way things are going, I'm not sure if that, that's going to happen. Well, we also kind of have to look at who profits for us not to unify, if you know what I'm saying. Mm. Um, you know, you, you said something else about uh, connecting and, and, you know, how connecting and, and the blend of cultures and, and the lack of it perhaps today. Uh, and it really struck me because I know Jamal Joseph, I know uh, Billy Mitchell, and, and I know them from the arts. You know, yeah. I know... I know Jamal Joseph as a director, uh, yeah. you know, and Academy, I know Billy. Academy, Academy nominated. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, I, and I know Billy Mitchell as an actor, you know, we used to work together. And so, but seeing them now also as these historians, as these, these people who are, who are uh, you know, storytellers helping us understand our past just shows me how connected art is to activism. You know, they're they're all these artists were all activists in their own way, like you said, J Lo is. Uh, I, I'm just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, just about the power of art, perhaps, and and maybe the thing that will connect us is that art. Well, I feel. I mean, that art is community, right? You know, like we make art as artists. We make art so that it can be shared, and um, they can speak to a common. Um, sentiment, common emotion, common story, common narrative, or even break open and show us something new that we didn't quite see before, or we couldn't quite put to words or put to music. 
you know, I was talking to, I can't remember who I was talking to, but we were talking about how, how, how accessible um, in the 1960s, how accessible, let's say, like Adam Clayton Powell was and Malcolm X were. You know, these are two men who we know to be as giants today who seem untouchable. Even if they were alive, they seemed just way out there, right? But they, they were ordinary men in the community. They worked in the community. And, you know, we have a, we inter, one of our interviewees, Denise Oliver Velez, she was a young lord. She's always been very um, into activism before she was a young lord. And, you know, she talked about how she would go over John Coltrane's house. And he didn't know them well, her and her friends, you know, the young people. But they were infatuated with John Coltrane, so he just let them hang out in his house. And he would practice. <laughs> and so, you know, isn't that crazy? Like, right. Um, but, you know, these, if you think about it, these were people of the community. So it would be nothing to, to, to have, you know, um, the, the kids in the block who look up to you say, okay, come on, hang out with me. It's all good. You know what I mean? Like, and so in that way, it's very communal, you know? And in, in, in that way, it's a village, right? It's a tight-knit community. You know, even the work of Nina Simone, you know, she, she, wanted, she, wanted, she wanted to create her legacy to be of the people. She didn't, she didn't choose a path of the super starlet. Um, and she would just, she did the performance at Morehouse College. We have it on an archival. And it's Nina Simone, you know, another giant, right? And there she is performing on the piano in front of bleachers. <laughs> the kind of bleachers you had in high school were like the basketball bleachers, those brown right. ones, right? <laughs> and it was like, wow, you know, and she is fashionable. She looks amazing. And she's performing for the young people, young, gifted, and black. Because she wanted to give, you know, she wanted to empower the young, the young generation. And she did. We have Mal Rogers um, in, our, in the series. And, you know, he talks about his family and how he was, um, his, his brothers and sisters were more fair-skinned than he was. He's the darkest in the family. And so when Nina Simone came out with Young, Gifted, and Black, um, he felt like he had a voice for the first time. He saw her on the cover of her album. She had natural hair. And there's this really cool artwork that's there. And he really felt, um, he really felt lifted by hearing that song and seeing that art for the first time as a young person. So, you know, even if the artist is not there and there's still that conversation that happens on so many different levels from grassroots to the, you know, to the upper echelons, you know, you can't escape art. Art's everywhere. Well, Keith, thank you very much uh, for being on the show and thank you for making this great documentary, which for me is, you know, one of those documentaries that I think every Latino and black New Yorker and outside of that here in America should watch because there's been this talk that Mike and I are constantly talking about on this podcast that. Yeah, Keith, you made this for us, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I did. I had you guys in mind. I had right. you like, all right, this is going to be perfect with brown and black. I'll be over there. Absolutely. <laughs> That's it for this 29th episode of Brown and Black. We thank Keith McCorder for stopping by the show and thank you for listening. If you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe to our show and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. Follow us at Brown Black Podcasts on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And have a great week. We'll talk to you on another episode of Brown and Black.